0: of the top commentators in compliance get together? They talk compliance, of course. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to the newest edition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Two Gurus Talk Compliance, where I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Christy Grant Hart, as we talk compliance and review some of the other top commentators in compliance as well. We will consider all things compliance, corporate ethics, ESG, governance, and whatever else is on our minds or on the minds of other experts in our field. In this, the I Don't Like It edition, we take a look at the mall FCPA enforcement action, some new cybersecurity regulations, not Florida man, not Florida woman, but Florida women, and a variety of other topics. I know you'll enjoy this episode. If you enjoy our podcast, I hope you will Subscribe, right, and review wherever great podcasts are listened to. Two Gurus Talk Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to the Two Gurus Talk Compliance Podcast with me, Christy Granthart. I'm here with the one and only Tom Fox. And today we are covering the Abermarl $218 million FCPA penalty, the NBA's involvement in forced labor in China, the challenges the cryptocurrency industry is having in hiring compliance officers what to do when you can't stop obsessing about work. And this week we have the shenanigans of not one, but two Florida women. But first, Tom, how has your week been? And what do you think is the most interesting development?
0: Well, the most interesting development is something I have to correct you on, which is Two Gurus talk Compliance is now the award-winning Two Gurus <laughs> talk Compliance, yeah. having been awarded a W3 award, which we will proudly display when we receive it. But yeah, I was thrilled to uh, get a podcast award for business consulting, and it really speaks to uh, the quality of what we've been able to put together, in addition to what our fans are enjoying. So what uh, you want me to just start with Mall?
1: I, I just have to say I couldn't be more delighted. That is huge news for us. So yeah, let's get into it, though. Let's go into it.
0: So this is a settlement that came out a couple of weeks ago. It's the biggest of uh, this year around the FCPA. And we had the chance, uh, you uh, guested on last week's recording of Everything Compliance, that post on Thursday, October 12th. But I still think it's a significant case for lots of different reasons. Um, Conduct that occurred literally up until 2017, business models, sales models that were clearly broken, overrides of internal controls. the business model seemed to be based on bribery, corruption, uh, misconduct, and um, really a lot going on. The Department of Justice gave them an NPA, and under the new corporate uh, FCPA program, they were able to sustain a forty-five percent reduction off the low end of the range of the sentencing guidelines. Uh, all of which means Albemarle. Made a significant effort. They self disclosed, albeit not timely. They extensively remediated. They extensively cooperated with the government. Their fine and penalty was very favorable for the conduct they engaged in. They did not sustain a monitor. Uh, There were lots of lessons in this in our everything compliance segment. You are uh, highlighted the holdback from the consequence management. Formulation in the 2023 evaluation of corporate compliance programs, where they were given a dollar for dollar credit for holding back bonuses, not clawing back, holding back. And that really I thought was important to demonstrate to companies you don't have to resort to a clawback, you can hold back. So that was interesting. It was a lot in the case. The SEC order, they settled via administrative order, went into great detail on the uh, actual conduct at issue. And you saw how agents and other third parties on the sales side who had gone through the company's due diligence approval process were had their commissions increased without notifying compliance or getting compliance approval. That's the override of internal controls. And our colleague, Jonathan Armstrong, had perhaps the most interesting observation, and, and I don't know why I didn't think of it myself, which was When you put something in quotes in an email, uh, (laughs) somebody who reviews that is going to ask, why did you put that in quotes? And of course, the quotes were the code words for bribery and corruption. Uh, So um, I used to teach a a course entitled something like, don't put stupid stuff in email. I'm going to add that to my course. So that was uh, interesting too. You had an interesting question which was you thought that a monitor was warranted in this case. So why don't we explore that a little bit?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And for anybody who doesn't know, the fact pattern of this was basically the company had third party and sales agents bribing people in Indonesia, India, and China. And the SEC order also talked about books and records violations in in China and the UAE as well, right? Vietnam, China, Indonesia, India. I think I've got them all now. I think that there was much hoopla about how monitor ships were coming back. And the DOJ was talking about how important they are and how the fact that they hadn't been used as much was not indicative that they weren't going to be used. And, and this is such a big case. There's so much here, multi-country problems huge numbers, red flags. One of the people told the company that they were gonna need to bribe to get the deal. That's in the fact pattern. And they said, okay, sure, no problem. So while I appreciate that there must've been tremendous remediation because that's part of the reduction from the sentencing, the fact that there isn't a monitor here makes me just go, well, when? When exactly is it going to be required? Because it just seems to me that, that this is a really surprising one, not to have at least a one-year, two. I mean, it seems, it seems un- unlikely to strike fear in the hearts of people that they're going to have to deal with one of them. I mean, what do you think, Tom?
0: Well, I think people misapprehend the criteria for a monitorship. In this year's 2023 Compliance Week conference in Washington, Billy Jacobson uh, had a fireside chat with head of the fraud section, Glenn Leon, and he asked him the single most important factor, whether or not a company would get a monitor, and his response was, stunningly, did you self-disclose? Now, what that has to do with your compliance program, what that has to do with your bad conduct, but that's what he said, and indeed, that's what's in the 21-point evaluation for monitorship. But the other 20 points seem to have devolved down to one point. And that point is, have you remediated? And then have you tested the effectiveness of your remediated compliance program? And we've now seen that three or four times, including the ABB enforcement action from the end of 2022, where they had apparently C-suite involvement. Um. or at least home office involvement in the bribery scheme. So the message is, although we might want to see a monitor for egregious conduct, I think the message is if a company works very hard to clean itself up, there's a very good chance they will not be required to have a monitorship. And that, that as much as the DOJ said, we're gonna put, bring the hammer down on monitors, I'm not sure how that's playing out in reality.
1: Color me cynical, but the fact that you have really good legal counsel who tells you to self-disclose and are right— and that you've done some remediation. If you, The monitor's job, in my opinion, obviously if you don't have a good program is to help you get a good program, right? And to tell you what that looks like and to test it. But the other thing is just to make sure the company stays on the straight and narrow and keeps investing in the compliance program. And I think that self-disclosure has zero to do with whether or not you're continuing to invest and you're continuing to allow these tools to become embedded and operationalized. I, I think that that is a misapplication I understand that's currently the DOJ's position on it, but I I don't like it. So I'm going to put it out there. I don't like it. I don't think it's a good choice, and I hope that they rethink it. So if you're listening, please, I think you should rethink this.
0: Well, we may have to rename this episode the I Don't Like It edition. Uh, (laughs) Wow. But something else you don't like apparently is the NBA right now.
1: I mean, I don't have a problem with the NBA itself, but I think that they should also rethink some things in light of current information. So my first article comes from the Wall Street Journal, and it's titled Lawmakers Press NBA and the Players Union on Forced Labor. So I wasn't aware of any of this until I read this article and thought it was really interesting. So the problem that these lawmakers have is that three Chinese sportswear companies have contracts with the NBA to make branded gear for the players, and they these three companies, unfortunately, obtain their cotton from the Xinjiang region of China. And as we know, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act creates a rebuttable presumption that any goods created or partially created from the Xinjiang region were created with forced labor. So earlier this month, the Congressional Executive Commission on China sent two letters, one of which was to NBA Commissioner Adam Silver, asking him to cut ties with these three gear makers. So the commission is a group of bipartisan lawmakers and executive branch officials set up to monitor China's human rights record. So it was signed by both a Democrat and a Republican. In addition to the letter sent to the NBA commissioner, the group also sent a letter to the National Basketball Players Association accusing them of, and I'm quoting here, potential complicity, unquote, in the use of forced labor in the region. So Chinese foreign ministry, of course, denies that there is forced labor or that it is an issue stating that allegations of forced labor and genocide in Xinjiang are vicious lies created by anti-China forces. Now, why is this such a big deal? Well, one of the companies in question recently hired a guard who plays for the team, the Dallas Mavericks, as their chief creative officer. And as it turns out, who knew, the Chinese public loved basketball. The Wall Street Journal noted that China is the world's largest consumer market and is home to millions of basketball fans. So, Tom, this seems like a no-brainer to me, right? NBA, change, choose a different supplier. Do you think that they will, or do you think that the political pressure of potential reputation loss in China will actually not create change in this situation?
0: So this is very, very interesting for several different reasons, Christy. First of all, the Chinese love affair with American basketball, the National Basketball Association, started 20 years ago, when the Houston Rockets drafted Yao Ming. Mm -hmm. And up until 2019, the top team, American team in China was the Houston Rockets. That changed when the then general manager of the Houston Rockets, Daryl Morley, sent out a tweet showing his support with Hong Kong and its struggles with being taken over by mainland China. The Chinese went ballistic and demanded that the NBA fire Maury and never let him general manage again. Now, that didn't happen, but the players actually attacked Maury for putting that tweet out. And LeBron James is the number one example. He said, hey, we have to go over there and play basketball. Well, that tells you all you need to know about the NBA's relationship with China. They view it as the largest market. They have done nothing uh, except for Daryl Morley's tweet to disrupt that. And they are now in a world of hurt because this is not just a bad look, this is illegal. And uh, for those who don't know, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act is perhaps the strongest compliance law on the books. And it's not whether the government thinks you're doing it, you have to affirmatively prove that you are not engaging or purchasing products that come from the Xinjiang region of China. And I can easily see the U.S. government going after the NBA over this. Um, and the NBA does not have a leg, maybe even a toe to stand on here that if they are buying products from that region, uh, They have to stop, and particularly apparel goods, if they're buying apparel goods with forced labor, the damage, the reputational damage that you talked about will be exponential compared to whatever the fine and penalty might be. Um, Interestingly, the NBA has not formally responded, as far as I can, can see, to this, certainly not as reported in the Wall Street Journal article, and um, I think the NBA players need to look in the mirror and rethink their position. That if they are wearing and selling goods that are coming from either forced labor or regions where forced labor is known to occur, they need to to stand against that. And I don't care how much money they're making in China. There are a lot of other American companies that are in a similar position, and don't see them either advocating, Hey, don't say anything or don't do anything for nothing.
1: Yeah. It's going to, I mean, at some point, won't these things just be embargoed anyway, they'll be caught by the act and they won't be able to come in, I think. So we will have to see, but very high. It's not the same thing as saying a certain tool company that we talked about last time might have forced labor issues. This is the NBA. This is, this is a big deal. So we'll definitely be following this one closely.
0: Right. Um. Uh, Christy, we had another speech by Deputy Attorney General, or my favorite legal word, DAG, Lisa Monaco. And hopefully you like this one a little bit better than you like the uh, Albemarle FCPA Enforcement Action Non-Monitor. And here she made, were you at that speech? Did you hear it?
1: I was actually on an airplane coming back from it, but I was at the Chicago conference.
0: Okay. Well, she gave a virtual talk to the SCCE Compliance and Ethics Institute 2023. And she announced a new policy for self-disclosure of mergers and acquisitions. Um, this I, don't, I shouldn't say new. I should say revised, because there have been several policies over the years, and people like Mike Mike Volkoff and myself have always said there was a safe harbor. But what she did in this policy is say, "Here are the guardrails. Here's what you have to meet, and if you meet these requirements, you the A presumption will be you will get a declination, and those guardrails are. Within six months of closing, you have to report to the Department of Justice any illegal activity the acquired company was engaging in. By one year, you must remediate that conduct. So what that did was, starting off in 2008 with an opinion release, the Department of Justice agreed to some very aggressive, Reporting by Halliburton on third party agents, not entire corruption. Then we had some enforcement actions in the first part of the last decade DSNS and JJ, where MA was discussed, Safe Harbor was provided uh, with the dates of 12 months for training and 18 months for remediation. In DSNS, that was modified to as soon as is practicable. In the 2012 FCPA resource guide, it said that if you engage in these steps, you quote, may in the quote, and yes, I use quotations here, may not be prosecuted. And uh, obviously, that is not a certainty. And so I think this policy provides certainty. It is. Uh, DOJ-wide, and so some of the questions I wanted to explore are, what does this mean, mean for the mergers and acquisition division? What does this mean for our good friend Lena Kahn over at the FTC? What does this mean for other agencies, the SEC, that might investigate mergers and acquisitions? But certainly a welcome policy change. Lawyers, to, we have, which are two, and our clients tend to uh, appreciate certainty, and if we can say, "Guys, here are the dates," we can point to this and say "You'll get the presumption of a declination. now this, the six months from closing is whether or not you engage in pre-acquisition due diligence. So I would hope compliance officers could use this to get on board the pre-acquisition due diligence team uh, at least somewhat. Looking at third party sales agents or high risk geographic areas or high risk business units. But six months from closing, you got to report to the DOJ. One year from closing, you have to have it cleaned up. So, new policy announcement. I think it's been a while and forthcoming, and I applaud the DOJ for doing this. What are some of your thoughts?
1: I love it. So, yes, we go from I hate it to I love it. I think that this is incredibly smart. I really liked Matt Kelly's exploration of the idea too. I thought that he did a really good article on this in radical compliance. I think that the intention is so strong to get compliance in the mergers and acquisition due diligence earlier. I think it can really move the needle for that. So many of our clients, Tom, still, they don't, the compliance officers don't get involved in M&A. They're kept out of it until the very last minute or after the press release comes out. So Anything we can do to make that faster and better, I think, is important, and I I like the certainty. It never did make sense to me. If you acquire somebody and you find out they did bad stuff, it's all your fault now. I, I think that this is a much more sane approach to that, and it's really practical. So I congratulate the DOJ as well on that. Well done on that one.
0: So what do you have for us, Christy?
1: All right. So we're going to go from some of the heavier pieces there to a article from the FCPA blog titled, Can You Tell the Difference Between Acceptable Networking and Wrongful Hiring Practices? And I would hope so, but actually it becomes a little bit confusing at some points here. So the story highlights the problems arising from conflicts of interest as told in the light of the CFO at Prudential or former CFO at Prudential. So the CFO resigned earlier this year because of an investigation into a code of conduct violation so he had been trying to help the son of an insurance regulator in hong kong and it turns out that's the regulator for prudential not so great the regulator had asked him to help his son with potential job opportunities this may sound like all those princeling cases as they're known of when jp morgan was targeting the children of the high net worth and chinese regulators So the regulator in question here led the Insurance Authority of Hong Kong's oversight of Prudential and the other life insurance companies. And the person who was currying assistance did in fact leave her job as well. So the article goes into the challenges of managing conflicts of interest when they apply to networking and hiring. And it points out that after all, many companies offer bonuses for people referring their friends to work at the company. And LinkedIn's top tip for getting hired at a large company is to find someone inside that can refer you directly to get you out of the anonymous applicant pool, including those wonderful ones that use AI to try to find you as opposed to someone who says, no, she's got a good personality. She should be awesome here. Bring her. So the article ends with an analysis about what should be normal networking and what is a conflict. And frankly, even the author didn't seem all that clear. So perhaps conflicts in hiring are like the classic definition of obscenity, which as Justice Potter Stewart said, I know it when I see it. Uh, There's some quid pro quos that are obviously quid pro quos and should be problematic, but there was really not a great definition by the end of the article. Tom, the, the author also came at at compliance officers and basically said, you know, we need to be more clear as to when it's not gray and what the lines are. What do you think about any of this?
0: So I am persuaded by the then chief compliance officer of the Wall Street Journal, who in a conference in 2012 said the following, if they don't meet our hiring criteria, that's end of story, end of state, but they don't go any further, period, full stop. If they don't have the credentials, both academic and professional, to meet our hiring criteria, and that includes personal interviews, they don't go further. And that, if you take that approach, you have basically followed or met the requirement in the life cycle third-party risk management, which is what's the business justification. Well, in the hiring, it's you meet the hiring criteria, and so they meet the hiring criteria. Um, I'm very comfortable moving forward with them. Now, let's move to an uncomfortable example, which is, well, it's the daughter of a government official. Can she be hired? Answer, yes. Can she work on matters related to contracts her father may be involved in? Answer, no. Do you have any contracts currently up for tender or renewal with her father? Answer, yes. Maybe not. Answer no. Maybe you can go forward. You it's it's a it's another risk. And if you think about risk, the higher the risk, the higher you have to manage that risk. Uh, Not to can you put a Chinese wall around him? Yes. Is that cumbersome? Is it tedious? Is it going to cost money? And is that in itself a risk? Yes. But you can if it's so important that that candidate is so strong. And some of these, particularly private equity firms um, or financial services firms, get excellent candidates that, yes, you can hire it. But if we go back to the sons and daughters cases a few years ago, none of those people met the criteria. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the after they were hired, people complained about them. So if they meet the criteria, yes. If there's a risk their parent or other family member Uh, has contract signing authority and there are open contracts or renewals, your risk has just increased and you have to manage that risk more closely. But if they meet the higher criteria, yes, I think you can go forward on that basis alone.
1: I like it. You're much more clear. I think you should rewrite the write a response to that article.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They should read my book. It's in the (laughs) compliance handbook. Everybody gets a
1: compliance handbook. There we go. All right, Tom, you you had sent some heavy, meaty article this next one. What do you want to talk about specifically in this? So, yeah,
0: this one comes from our friends at Compliance and Enforcement blog. That's the um, New York University School of Law blog. And this one is on the New York State Department of Financial Services proposed cybersecurity amendments. Now, they're going to revise the rules around cybersecurity, and these amendments are basically comments that uh, practitioners and other commentators made to the rules amendment, um, where the DFS has commented on the comments. And it comes in at 92 pages of basically footnotes. Now, you and I are complete geeks, so I can certainly see us reading 92 pages of footnotes. But the the thing that makes this interesting is number one, and perhaps the most important part, even more than the California Privacy Act, uh, Consumer Privacy Act, the New York State Department of Financial Services has the leading uh, rules around cybersecurity in the United States because we don't have any federal legislation at this point. And obviously, New York is an important place for corporations. So um, many corporations are, if not domiciled in New York, have offices in New York. So it's going to apply to them. And um, if you want to put a cybersecurity compliance program in place, the DFS rules are a great place, perhaps the best place in the United States from a regulatory perspective to start. So let me read some of these categories. Um, Corporate governance. That. The boards of director or senior governing party has oversight over the end of these risks. Where have you heard that report before? Number two, exercise that risk. What do you do? You perform a risk assessment. Number three, what do you do after you perform the risk assessment? You put policies in place to manage the risk. Uh, number four, governing authority, governance, and budgetary authority. Who's got budgetary authority over managing this risk? Well, it's the chief information security officer, CISO, In our world, that's the CCO. And here's an interesting one. Annual certifications. The DFS requires the CISO to provide an annual certification that the company has effective cybersecurity compliance program in place. So uh, I went through that in some detail, Christy, because I want everyone to understand there is a resource out there that you can. It's easily accessible online. These commentaries are fabulous if you want to go into the weeds. But if you comply with the New York State or the DFS rules and regs, that's probably going to be good enough for most of America right now, including shareholder derivative actions. Uh, so it's a great resource until we get national legislation. It's the best regulatory resource in the United States. There are other resources outside the United States, but it's a great place to start for someone looking how do I build out a cybersecurity compliance program?
1: It is, it was really, it's it's a fabulous resource. And I think that, you know, we're looking for resources. We're looking for ways to, to get it correct. And they have a lot of really interesting commentary on the, if you have a centralized program that they are going to take a look at it, even if it's not in New York, if it affects New Yorkers. So some really interesting comments on the comments So Tom, I am not sure I have it in me to read 92 pages of footnotes. Maybe that, that I think that that's a step too far for me. So. Oh, wait, stop
0: a it. You're as than- <laughs> geek as anyone out there.
1: Stop <laughs> it. That's true. Maybe not about cyber, but let's turn from one C to another C and that is crypto. So we both picked some articles on crypto this week because it's far too much fun. Um my first choice was called crypto lawyer crypto sector seeks lawyers and compliance officers after reputational hits what it comes from the wall street journal so the article details the challenges crypto firms are having in hiring and retaining legal and compliance talent after the spectacular collapse of FTX and the other crypto exchanges. So while law firm partners and high-level folks were jumping on board in 2021, after the crypto winter, as it's known of last year, people have pumped the brakes on all those big crypto jobs. So the article quotes a number of folks, including the chief compliance officer of the blockchain infrastructure company Paxos Trust, who said that because Paxos has a, quote, regulatory-first approach to compliance, unquote, they should be able to attract great talent. This statement was a bit challenged and juxtaposed by the article's author, who noted that Paxos issued and listed Binance's dollar-peg cryptocurrency, which drew the New York regulator's anger last year. The regulator told Paxos to stop creating Binance USD tokens. The chief compliance officer at Paxos is proud of how they responded to that incident. But honestly, for me, her story just didn't inspire a lot of confidence that they or any of the crypto firms are out of the woods just yet. So... I'm not pretending to be psychic here, Tom, but my crystal ball says that we are nowhere near the end of the cryptocurrency compliance meltdown. Can you imagine wanting to jump into that fire right now?
0: No, I can't. And <laughs> I can't imagine any compliance officer would. The liability you would potentially have, both civil and criminal, may be unlimited. And short of Bitcoin or maybe Ethereum, I wouldn't trust any of those. Uh, at all, so maybe there's some that aren't frauds or corrupt out there, but crypto's on trial right now, and that's part of our next story. But um no, I don't know how you get anybody in, and and I know lots of people who jumped jumped over in sort of 20 and 21, and maybe ruining the day they did that.
1: Indeed, talk about somebody that's ruining the day. What's your next one on on crypto, crypto part two? crypto part 2
0: sort of but it's also on fraudsters it's also on what's your job as a journalist what's your job as an author and i really found this interesting and i'm talking about michael lewis author of the newly released book on sam bankman-fried sbf mm-hmm. and his now failed company ftx so there're currently two um dueling biographies of SBF out there. We have uh, Mr. Lewis's book, and then a book by a gentleman named Zeke Foe, uh, a Bloomberg investigative reporter. And Mr. Foe pretty early determined that Sam Bankman-Fried was a fraudster, and his book is largely about that. Michael Lewis... I don't think felt that way. I'm, I'm not quite sure how he feels now, but he certainly didn't doesn't bring the criticism to bear in his book. All of this is in an article from our good friend, Francine McKenna, who writes on a Substack uh, site called The Dig. Francine also has a blog, Inray the Auditors. She has worked at MarketWatch. She has taught at the Warden School. All of these in accounting. So she sort of comes at those angles. And um she talks about visiting with Mr. Lewis over lunch and Mr. Lewis being very upset that another author would attack him like that. He viewed that as corruption. I'm not sure I would view it quite that way. But Christy, the um this dialogue about whether Lewis was fooled, whether he wasn't fooled, and whether he just chose to write it in this way, I think really takes away from the book because I thought he did a good job of really painting how odd and unique SBF was, well, perhaps not is anymore. Um, and if you want to read about fascinating characters, he certainly won. Unfortunately, in our field, there's some well-known fraudsters, and um, I don't know how you feel about that, but I remember meeting one for a cup of coffee, and I walked away, and I thought, you know, I really like that person.
1: Mm-hmm. I
0: really like that person. And then I thought, that person, not only a convicted fraudster, but has been jailing for their fraud. And so, um, typically fraudsters are like that, unfortunately, and they're very good con men and con women. So I don't know if Michael Lewis got conned, uh, certainly he's been criticized for not bringing that story forward in the book. Um, he he is an author. He's not a journalist, or at least I don't consider him a journalist. I'm a huge fan. I've read all his stuff. And. If you don't recall, his first book was entitled Liar's Poker because Hmm. he worked at Salvin Brothers, a firm that no longer exists, talked about sort of fraudulent issues that were going on way back in the 90s that uh, if he wasn't a participant in, he certainly saw up close and personal. So I'm inclined to give him a pass on that. Um, Maybe I'll feel differently when I've finished the book. I'm still in the middle of it. So what are your thoughts on really any of that?
1: (laughs) Well, it's made me think I want to read the book because I haven't yet, but I I tell you, SBF is such, you're right. He's such an interesting character. There was a really interesting article in the Wall Street Journal the last couple of days about his trial that's now started in New York. And how the judge in that trial keeps telling his attorneys to stop repeating themselves, stop trying to bring in things they're not supposed to bring into trial. To the point where the the author basically said, he's turning off the jury. The jury is getting really mad at him. You don't want to have the jury mad at your attorney and mad at the defense. It's really bad news. So we'll see if he gets going on the right direction. But right now, SPF is still going the direction we anticipated, which is not in a good direction at all.
0: Uh, Can I just note, whenever your ex gets on the stand in your fraud trial, (laughs) nothing good is going to come of
1: it. Nothing good will come of this when she's (laughs) turned state evidence against you. It's not good. Um, All right, let's go from one not good thing to another, although this is much less stressful for to be Fair. So I wanted to turn it to another article about uh, work. So if this one is called Stop Obsessing About Work All The Time. And it's great because I know for many people, myself certainly included, I already know this about you, Tom, we're guilty sometimes about ruminating about work when we are not working. So the author chose a pretty stark example that's quite extreme to start off the story. And it's a tech worker named Joe Mellon who went on a solo wilderness excursion to remote Colorado and found he couldn't let go of his work. So after 36 hours, he finally gave in and began sketching PowerPoint presentations, filling 20 pages of his journal before he could finally let it all go. That makes me feel better about myself. There's no way I would do that. So... Back, no freaking I mean, I'm obsessive, but not that much. All right, so back to the article. And unsurprisingly, focusing on work when we're not at work can negatively affect our sleep, our mental health, our relationships. So we really need to cut it out. Some of the strategies that I recommend include keeping a notepad by your bed so you can write down the things that are keeping you up at night with a promise to yourself to deal with them in the morning. They also recommend finding a routine to tell your brain it's now leaving work emotionally as well as physically, the classic take off your shoes, shut your door, and finally uh, finding something consuming to do to take your mind off of work. And uh, Tom, as you know, seven months ago, I took up hanging from the ceiling with aerial silks, and it is genuinely one of my favorite things in life. I'm going in three and a half hours. And it helps me to do exactly what this article suggests. So if I'm focusing on work while I'm hanging 10 feet in the air upside down, it is not going to end well. I am certain of that. So I do fully endorse the find something consuming approach. What do you do to make it so you stop thinking about work?
0: So Here's what I do. I have the greatest job in the world. I get to talk to people like you all day long. <laughs> Earlier this afternoon, I interviewed uh, someone about uh, CCO certification and corporate governance, and it was a fabulous conversation. We explored Caremark, we explored CCO certification, we explored the board's role, we explored what it meant for the CCO personally, and I, as I told him afterwards, on the scale of one to ten in the fun category, that was an eleven. And so that's how I deal with it. I do. I have. I do what I love every day. It seems like I'm not working, so I don't worry about it.
1: All right. May I recommend hanging from the ceiling if that doesn't keep working for you? You can. I can see it, Tom. I can see you doing the flips for sure.
0: I just work out two hours a day and listen to lectures on tape.
1: <laughs> um, there you go. All right. Good enough.
0: Uh, next up, I wanted to look at an interesting article, or at least identify an interesting article in Corporate Compliance Insights, it, entitled Identifying Compliance Bo- Blind Spots by Sam Ishka Sharma. And in this, she I really wanted to shout out to her for bringing forward the idea that reemphasizing even, even that. Compliance is not static. It is incredibly dynamic. And the DOJ says, uh, assess your risks when your risks change. Well, she even goes a little bit further that said, you really should be uh, not auditing, but monitoring your compliance program as much as you can to prevent uh, a corporate blind spot. So we talked about uh, Albermel uh, at the start of this. And obviously, Uh, compliance was not informed when agents had their commission rates changed. Well, if that was one of the key facts in that enforcement action, why not look at that? Why not go back and just test in high-risk regions, do you have any agents that are receiving commission rates higher than what you approved? Has anything been changed in SAP? My wife is an SAP guru so when you change, there's an audit trail inside TIP. Um, So really think about not only your program going forward, but a retrospective look back and see where you are now. And she gives several different things about impact and internal controls and control risk matrix that I won't go into, but the article is definitely worth a look. But even as important as the things she actually wrote, I applaud her for bringing it up. Because, you know, you and I talk about data or we talk about behavioral psychology and we talk about new developments and we're on the cutting edge of where we see compliance going. Well, sometimes you just might want to see, am I missing something that's in front of me now?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that it was a good article about, I like her key risk matrix. I like the key risk indicators and matching them. I think that She's got some really smart ideas, and I do agree with you. I think Corporate Compliance Insights, it's, it's a good one to take a look at. So check the links in the show notes, as we say. Right, Tom? So,
0: and now to fan favorites. Not Florida man, not Florida woman, but Florida women. What Florida
1: you got? Women. So what would this podcast be without a good closing story from Florida? So we're especially lucky today because we have, as you said, two women in Florida causing mischief and making poor choices. So these two Florida women had a hankering for Taco Bell and who can blame them? But instead of ordering their own dinners from a mobile app, they decided it'd be much better to go to the restaurant, march up to the mobile food order shelves and steal bags of food and run to their car with them. So, as you might imagine, store employees followed this woman to ask them to return the food. The driver wasn't in the mood to hand over nachos, so instead she opened the door and pulled out a gun. Detectives were able to locate the suspect's vehicle at a nearby hotel, and they were booked into county jail. Tom, personally, I think their biggest mistake was that they stopped at that hotel when clearly they should have run for the border.
0: Well, I just think that this this may have been a ploy by Taco Bell to show just how far and devoted their fan base is, but we must note that they had to go to Florida to find those devoted people. So Florida woman, Florida women, shout out Florida women.
1: <laughs> well done as always. Thank you for joining us on the Two Gurus Talk Compliance. Thank you, Tom. We'll see you again soon.
0: Thanks everyone for making us a W3 podcast winner. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Two Gurus Talk Compliance. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review wherever great podcasts are listened to. We've linked to all of the stories in the show notes. So if you'd like more information, you can click through the links and uh, check out these stories. I hope you will join Christy and I again next time when Two Gurus Talk Compliance, a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.